welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability and sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where we're going? You know all the questions. I don't know why I say them every time. I am joined today by Andy Piper. Hi. Nice to have you on here. Andy was sitting upstairs. Actually, he wasn't at first, and I asked the Red Hatters, who's sitting at the OSI desk? Because Andy has volunteered to come here and represent the Open Source Initiative, which is a rather small group of people who do very meaningless, unimportant things. And that's totally (laughs) not true at all. So tell me, what makes you want to come out and help out the OSI? Hi, Richard. Yeah. So my name's Andy, and I've been a member of the OSI. I actually checked my records last night because I kept saying this to people when they came by the booth yesterday, why am I here? What am I involved with? I've been a member of the OSI since 2012, and I believe I was at OzCon. I think it was probably in Portland at that time. I've been an open source user, contributor, hacker, occasional maintainer for longer than 10 years. And so as a member, the OSI emailed everybody and said, hey, can anybody help out overseeing an open conference? So here I am. I'm based here in the UK, so it's not too far of a jig for me to come into town. Having said that, I was at Falstam at the weekend as well. As a lot of people have been as well, of course. Take the train back. I hear it was a fun train. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a big believer in the OSI's mission, which is to really sort of defend and define the open source definition to help people to navigate the licensing complexity and understand which licenses meet the open source definition. I'm ready to sort of answer questions around that to do that, both that maintenance and also that review process for when people say, hey, I've got a great idea for a license. First of all, do you really need one? Well, because there's a bunch already and there's a good chance that at least one of them is going to fit your needs. And second of all, okay, so let's talk about whether it meets the definition of what open source means. So for those that don't know, the OSI was formed back in 1998 by Eric Rand and Bruce Ferenz. Both of whom are no longer members around the board. I don't know for certain. I don't worry about that. Double check the website and check who's currently on the board. So are you a lawyer by any chance? I am not a lawyer. Okay, I'm also not a lawyer. Thank you for clarifying that. No. So yeah, thanks, Richard. I'm not a lawyer and I am a volunteer for the OSI. I am not formally sort of part of the OSI organization. So I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. But anything I say is should be taken through the lens of through the lens of an enthusiastic supporter. And yeah, that's where I'm coming from. Well, my question is kind of pointed because the OSI is really wonderful at stopping license proliferation, Uh dealing with the license list of what are OSI approved licenses, which is really important for understanding things like stopping open washing, things like stopping really crappy clauses. It just shouldn't be there. But as a non-lawyer myself, I'm always like, how can I get involved as a member? You can use the wiki and learn more. You can go look at the OSD. You can go look at the 10 principles Mm -hmm. for what makes an open source license. That's That's what the OSD is. So the OSD is the open source definition has those 10 principles, which are quite similar, by the way, to those of you that are familiar with the Free Software Foundation. And they've got like five principles, I think. And then sometimes there's some overlap. But basically, they're very, very similar in terms of those things. But yeah, clarify those terms, clarify those TLAs, those three-letter acronyms of folks. Yeah, one of the differences is, right, is no restrictions. Uh-huh. So free software submission, GPL license, restrictions involved. Corporate people can't use this, right? Or closed source can't use it. That's right. The OSD doesn't have that restrictions. Like, no, anyone can use it anywhere. That's the whole point of open. So can you help me understand a bit more? I know you're an enthusiast. That's obvious. It's clear. You shout that out. <laughs> it's the best. Thank you. 
How do you benefit from the OSD by being an enthusiast? What does it give you besides having the OSD there? Well, I think from my own perspective as somebody who's been paying to be a member of the organization for a decade, I do that partly actually. And interestingly, it's given I'm in the room you recording this show is the sustainability. I want to sustain that organization. I want to sustain the expertise and the knowledge and the enthusiasm and passion that folks like Bruce and Eric brought when they set out that and sort of definitions of these yeah. principles. My personal perspective is that uh, when you have a set of principles, they can quite easily be derailed in some circumstances. Otherwise, not applied into the OSI, right? So yeah. they haven't gone off in a strange direction. I was reading this morning because I thought I probably should make sure that I was well informed about one of the licenses that came along a while ago where you know, there was quite a healthy debate about mm. some of the principles and it ended up getting withdrawn because it didn't meet that definition and the organization chose not to sort of push it forward as an open source license. So yeah, I think I get involved because I care about enabling people to understand. And as I've been standing at the booth here at State of Open, people come along and see the open source logo. It's very recognizable. It's that beautiful green circle with the keyhole cut out of it. I actually hacked my conference badge because here at State of Open, we've got these little colorful stickers that define how much in communication you are. So you have <laughs> a yellow, red, green sticker. If you choose to have one to say, you know, I'm, I'm open to talking to people. I'm, I'd rather not. So, and that's cool. A lot yeah. of differences where they have that. And I took my green sticker and I had that little keyhole <laughs> in it. But I didn't get one of those stickers. Oh, yeah, you better go to, you've got to go to one of the state of open info desks and then they have some of those. Cool. To pick out. So yeah, I care about the ability for somebody to say, you know, these are, this is what this is all about. People come into the booth and saying, you know, well, I see the logo. What does it mean? What's the OSI? Well, the OSI is all the people that define what open source means. Yeah. Stand by that definition and talk to policymakers, governments about what it means to be part of the movement. So I want to take a bit of a left turn because I want to ask more about you. So you say you've been sure. a developer for a yeah. long time. Yeah. What's your current interaction with open source? My current interaction with open source. Yeah, are you employed? You work independently, you're contractor. I'm not currently employed. I'm taking some time out from my career. I'm fortunate to be in a position to do that right now. And I'm kind of looking around, to be honest. Cool. Although I've just come out of a company where I spent eight or nine years and working on APIs and I think the developer community. And I've always enjoyed enabling developers to connect with data and APIs. So I've been in developer relations for sort of 15 years at two or three cool. different companies. I was a developer advocate for MQTT, which is an open protocol for lightweight messaging and, yep. and sort of internet things. So um, one protocol. I did some stuff at, with Cloud Foundry back in its early formative days when that was an open source project. Well, it was an open source project. But when I was getting formed, I then spent eight years working hard on the Twitter API. But all of that time, I'd be interested in how developers interact with technology. So I'd be into educating, providing examples, hand-waving in conflicts, just getting excited in front of crowds, coming on podcasts. But currently my interest, about 18 months ago, I started to sort of reinvest my time and interest in electronics. And I'm also a member of the Python Software Foundation. I think Python is a fantastic, expressive, cool language. It's great for learners. It's extremely capable in sort of complex data science things as well. And it scales from running on space, or enabling what the Gentle Space Telescope is doing at the high end through all kinds of, you know, desktop applications down to running on Lego bricks. So Damien George created as a Kickstarter this thing called MicroKaiser, 
So it's a re-implementation of the Python language for balls on microcontrollers. So like yeah. ESP32, small chips. So it's more than the Raspberry Pi, it's like much smaller. Yeah. Smaller than a Raspberry Pi. So you're not going to run a full operating system on these chips. So yep, yep. if you look at the Raspberry Pi and the Raspberry Pi Foundation brought out this chip during the pandemic, actually a couple of years ago, called the RP2040, which is a yep. microcontroller. So the native language for these things is C, typically. And Damien and the MicroPython community built a Python implementation that runs on these cool. things. So I took a look at MicroPython. I'd been aware of it for some time. And I've been getting involved in that community and going on to the meetups. The core team are in Australia. So I kind of tend to do a 7 a.m. my time jump on their evening calls. But again, to some extent, the pandemic's been beneficial there because they then moved those things to being virtual. And I mean, those of us not locally could participate. So I've been getting really excited about MicroPython. I've been helping to maintain the awesome MicroPython list of our website. And what else am I playing with right now? Well, um, you've also got an aura ring. So it's all about the microchips, you know? Oh, yeah. Fully kind of networked and all that kind of stuff. Well, the reason I asked that question, fascinating, really cool. I love small stuff. I do a lot of stuff with electronic flight call monitoring. So I use oh, some yeah. of the microchips to just record audio and environment uh-huh. everywhere. Super cool. But you have this unique perspective as someone who's not involved in the OSI outside of being just a member who's just really passionate about it. You're not someone who's jumping in on the list and saying this license is bad. Maybe you do occasionally, but not from a lawyer's perspective. And you're not someone who's a corporate sponsor trying to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. And since you've been doing it for over 10 years as a member, what have you seen that's changed significantly in the past decade with the OSI? Particularly as a developer advocate, because you've had to think about how developers interface with it. So I'm just really curious about your experience of the OSI growing and moving. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and so my other, another sort of String to my bow, if you like, is when I was doing MQTT, I was also the project lead of the Eclipse project. Cool. Yeah. So of course, the Eclipse Foundation, the OSI, and other organizations have had very close relationships yep. all the way through. So I think one of the things that I've observed most often is the ability of those organizations as extra knowledge networks to bring that knowledge to policy conversations in particular. So that's something that I really appreciated. I kind of felt that, you know, I'm helping to fund and support the people that can have those expert conversations. Yeah. So right now, I mean, the thing that I'm really fascinated by and really the OSI and Eclipse brought to my attention AI. was the AI is one of them. Yeah. But actually, the direction I was going to go with the conversation there was the Cyber Resiliency Act. Yeah. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, AI is another thing. The OSI got very involved in debating and having feedback on. Well, I mentioned that because that's one of those things. Really, yeah, really hard to talk exactly. about. How do we understand AI yeah, yeah. in the licensing world? Yes. How do we understand things like ChatGPT, but also GitHub Copilot, scrunching up all Based. this data? Yeah, uh, you know. and I've had a couple of conversations about that at the conference as well. Cool. Because people come by the booth and they send they they're welcome to take away some open source stickers. That's great. I'd much rather have that conversation, educate them about what this thing is, where it came from, what open source means. It's 25 years old is the definition. It's yeah. a thing now. I mean, it's a milestone. That's great. Anybody. And then something that we celebrated, of course, at Falstaff. And at Falstaff. I didn't go this year, but I've been talking to people about how it went. What was your experience? It's my first time. Oh, so great. I've been, awesome. I've been doing open source for 20 years. And <laughs> it was the first time where I wasn't subject to the whim of my employer to some extent, where I needed to plan where I might be on the Monday or the Friday. So I got to go along, take part as a participant, yep. meet a bunch of old friends that I hadn't seen in some cases for up to 10 years. It was big. It was confusing. It was a bit <laughs> intimidating. 
It was my first time in Belgium as well. A beautiful place. Loved the waffles, carpet flames. Super good. Chocolate, um, not bad. Oh my God. But of course, one of the great things at the keynote on Saturday at the opening session was, it was a ball about 25 years away from source. Cool. Uh, and um, celebrating that and talking through the history and then also announcing that the OSI is now part of the digital goods that has joined the digital People. alliance. So digital public goods alliance, thank you. Uh, DCP. Sorry. Yeah, I'm getting my G's and P's on my yeah, Just PGP, GPG, one of those. No, yeah. neither of those. Wait, uh. So that I think is really meaningful as well. It's really sort of again bringing them what open source means and the fact that it's a set of freedoms people sometimes don't necessarily appreciate that bringing that definition, bringing that knowledge network to that conversation. So you mentioned the CRA, the Cyber yeah. Resiliency Act, which is an EU act that is going to have restrictions and plans for how open source can be used in corporations and internationally with the idea of having Europe being a sovereign space for computing where they don't have to depend upon, say, American technology to make things work. But open source, obviously, is very difficult for that. Do you have any thoughts on the Cyber Resiliency Act? It's a big topic. It is. So first thing I would suggest to folks that aren't familiar, go along to the open source tool website which lands you on the blog. Simon Phipps has done a really nice roundup. Thank you, Simon. Being something like 19 or 20 sort of different organizations in yep. Europe that have all responded yep. to the debate. And uh, both the tips and OSI are part of that. And there's a bunch of others in there. And all. a yeah. lot of them, absolutely, a lot of them have very similar takes on it. I'm an enthusiast. I like writing code. And by default, when I write code, I like to throw it online and share it and say to people, hey, look what I built. Yeah. Now, my code isn't always, definitely isn't always the greatest, for <laughs> sure. And I benefit from sharing it, getting other people's feedback, getting other people's improvements. And I hope that I can do that for other people sometimes too. But I do that for fun, personally. I don't want to be subject to having to make sure it's bug-free. Anybody who writes code knows that no software is going to be... That's impossible. ...bug-free, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's always a dependency on something else, another component in the system. So I think one of the things that the OSI has suggested and strongly, in fact, not just suggested, very strongly said to the EU conversation is they've carved out an exception for open source, but they haven't really made it clear enough at what point the rules and regulations start to apply. Yeah. So I think it's important, and the OSI has made it clear that it's important that those restrictions only come to apply at the point at which an open source project starts to become commercialized, starts to be part of a commercial solution of something that is so supported by an entity, not by an individual, not yep. some group of developers who are just hacking for fun in yep. their bedrooms or wherever. And that's not to say hacking for fun in your bedroom is some kind of diminishment. It's not at all. It's just the way you might be located, right? So those things are really important. So that I think it's something that needs to be more fully considered. Now, the EU is doing a lot to support, fund, grow awareness of open source, and that's a really important thing. I think it's awesome that, for example, the EU has created its own Mastodon instance and said we're going to exist on free and open source software in the Bediverse. So turning the topic slightly to something that I feel that I know a little bit more about as well. But either way, I think it's a demonstration that the EU sort of, if you like, its heart is in the right place in terms of their approach to open source, but they need to do more to safeguard the ability for individuals to be creative and to demonstrate and exercise their own freedoms. Love that. Hope that the UK government listens as well. Oh, absolutely. So, so very much so. yeah. My government, of course. And it's been really great. It's been a good conversation. Thank, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And for people who are interested in learning more about the OSI, they can, of course, go to opensource.org. That's correct. And read more there. Please do. If you're not a member already, you should go join. 
And for people who want to learn more about what you get involved with, Andy Piper, are you on the internet? On the, on the internet, in a few places. The easiest, shortest place to go is andypiper.me, Emmy. It's just my landing page with links to all the places I exist. Excellent. It's andypiper.main. Wait, no. Dot me. <laughs> andypiper.me. Personal landing page. Check it out. I'm on Mastodon. I'm Andy Piper on McCall.social, which is my Mastodon name. I'd be delighted to have you follow and chat with you. Thank you so much, Andy. Have a good day. Enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Where do we learn all the things that we know? Very excited to have our guests on today. This is part of a special podcast I'm doing in person. This is the first time I've ever had three people in a room doing a podcast. It's exciting. I posted like 150 podcasts, but they've all been remote. So this is just very cool for me. I'm at State of the Open in London, and I saw two women upstairs at a stall and wanted to know what they were doing and how it helped out open source in general and also the state of open in the UK. So without any further ado, I'm Rachel Tower, your host. Hello. And I'm today by our two guests. Anna and Gemma. Anna and Gemma. And both of you are college students, I believe, or university students, rather. Um, I apologize. In Cambridge. Is that correct? Correct. And you had a stall upstairs for, I believe, women in CL? Yes. So basically CL stands for computer lab, which is how the computer science department is called at Cambridge. Cool. And women at CL is the initiative just promoting inclusivity and community of women who do computer science, either as students or researchers at Cambridge. And because of the gender imbalance, we think it's really important to have an initiative that makes sure that everyone feels welcome there. That is awesome. And thanks for the great summary. So this obviously is an area that needs a lot more care taken to it. Now, in open source, there's obviously a huge gender imbalance, but this isn't just an open source thing. This is about women in computer science in general at Cambridge. Can you tell me roughly any statistics about the level of representation on either side of the genders? Yeah, it's actually quite sad. Last time I checked, there were 18% of female accepted students in the undergrad degree in Cambridge. And unfortunately for some higher positions, higher degrees and professorships, the percentage of women is even lower than that. That is very sad. I agree with you. So tell me what sort of activities you do to help fix that imbalance. So it's a real big range. We really focus on building a community rather than just hosting events. So for instance, we had our recent bake off where we got our community together and we did some baking just to kind of chill and relax, to make connections and talk about things in an open space whether that be how our courses were going or alternatively just general university life. We also host lots of talks, either from external speakers and our partners or from the amazing women that we have in the department doing lots of research. So we're fortunate enough today, for instance, we've got one of our PhD students presenting some of their work on federal learning, which is really awesome. And then the big event we run every year is partnered with Oxford's Equivalent Society. So we work quite closely with them. And that is usually a conference where we get together and celebrate our research as two large departments and also talk about where we're going next. What's the name of that society? Oxford Women in Computing. Basically, we're closely affiliated with them. And yeah, we cooperate on the annual conference. Every second year it's in Cambridge, every second year it's in Oxford. This year it's going to be in Cambridge in in April. And it's extremely excited. We're preparing for it. Another thing that we do at Women at CL Initiative is just Listen to our students' concerns and try to act on that. So, for example, recent concerns that have been raised in the past year was, for example, lack of female lecturers. So we're lobbying the departments to have more female lecturers 
for undergrad courses. Another issue that has been raised was that it was difficult to get free menstrual products in the computer lab because there were no shops nearby. And we successfully lobbied in the department and now they're providing free sanitary products. Things like that. We're basically just trying to make the environment more welcoming to current students and potential applicants. When you talk about lobbying, what does that look like? That just means that basically, first of all, we write some emails, go to the department's student and staff consultative forum, where we have a member who has a voice and can raise some issues and they can raise something. Usually the response is that they want us to have a clear plan, clear justifications why something is needed. So it usually requires quite a lot of background work, for example, doing a survey among the students, what they want to see and when something is really a concern for them or justifying to the department why an expense is worth it and why it would make it much better. But we're extremely lucky that the department does acknowledge that this is a problem and that this is something that is worth investing into. We're lucky that changes do happen and that there are a lot of people who are willing to support us also among the staff. Yeah, and we put a lot of effort into making sure those are followed up as well. So making sure the impact has the correct put we expect. And also if the department is hesitant, for instance, we'll kind of make sure that we're constantly getting out to them about the importance of that issue and why it's so important that we create that safe space. That is really cool. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Let's go back to the conference. Yeah. So you said it happens every other year. How long is that conference going on? Oh, I actually wouldn't be able to answer it, but I know that when I started uni, Four years ago, it was already an established thing. And then during COVID, obviously it didn't happen, but last year we were back in person and this year we're back in person with full capacity. Yes, what does full really capacity exciting. mean? That means over a hundred attendees. Most attendees are only students from Oxford and Cambridge that yep. attend, but like we also have other invited people. The conference lasts for one day and we have a keynote speaker, but also a lot of activities such as very short presentations where students can present in one minute or five minute slots, which is more encouraging for someone who might have never presented before and would be very hesitant to apply to do a 20 minute talk. But instead, if they know that they just have to summarize their research in one minute, they're more likely to apply. So we have something like that also at the university as part of the course, and it's called One Minute Madness. And I think it's a really cool it's concept. Very, so yep. definitely implement that. Have you heard of Pecha Kucha? It's kind of similar to that. That was what it oh, okay. was when I was a student where you had, I think, around two minutes and you had a very quick slide. And the slide can only have like five points on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Lightning talk are really instructive and really helpful. Yeah, they're really great. You say Oxford and Cambridge. Excellent. Those are the two main research institutions in the UK. Have you tried reaching out to other institutions? Who else is involved? During COVID, when we were organizing different online events and so on to keep the community going, there was a huge event that was basically initiated by Imperial's equivalent society, basically Imperial Women in Computing or something along those lines. I'm not sure about the society names, but a lot of universities have this equivalent institution initiative. And at that point, there were, I believe, six universities participating in this event. And it was just a social event online, Mm. but a lot of members from all over England attended. And I thought that was a really good way to connect. And in those difficult times when during COVID, it was really hard to meet new people. We enabled students to get in touch with someone they might have not met otherwise that way. I think it's really cool that many universities recognize that this is an issue and organize such communities and safe spaces. 
yeah, I really appreciate Imperial's initiative on that. Yeah. And I think also it's really worth mentioning there that we're very aware that there's a lot of dimensions to access. So it's not just, for instance, women in computer science, it's people from backgrounds that aren't necessarily represented, whether yeah. that be their ethnic race, their sort of economic status. So we do also work kind of a lot of us as members and as a community ourselves to work with all those different groups. So there's lots of different access groups in Cambridge, for instance. So some I'm personally involved in is the Women's Business Society sure. that have some really great connections in industry. There's also the 93% Club Cambridge, which is part of a wider network supporting the 93% state school population, which is kind of scary when you look at the statistics in yep. university admissions, they really don't match up. So we're very aware of the fact that we are tackling one issue here, but we're also aware that we can collaborate really effectively with other access groups to make sure we're having a real wide impact for everyone. I know that tech as a whole has a higher representation of neurodivergent participants mm-hmm. than yes. the general population. One of my questions there is, have you seen the same thing at universities or in computer science programs at universities? Yeah, I can definitely say that I have several friends at the department who maybe are autistic or have other special conditions. And I think that it's pretty cool that the university actually also supports that. And it's not easy, but it's not hardly difficult to apply for special considerations with deadline extensions, exam conditions, and so on. So I think that's cool. But yeah, I can definitely say that it's visible how this population is much more present in a competitive institution in a STEM program like computer science than it was, for example, in general population, which is, for example, schoolmates from elementary school that you need. Yeah, I think it's actually really fascinating because I can't remember the exact statistics off the top of my head, but I remember reading about how Cambridge specifically has a really high neurodivergent population compared to other universities. So that's quite interesting to see just how we have that really big community that we really need to make sure we're aware of. And also then look into why specifically we have such a high representation of those students to make sure that we can really understand where they're coming from, what their motivations are, and making sure that we're really aware of the fact that that population is really important as our body kind of grows and maintains itself. Excellent. So I have to give some context before I ask my next questions. So I also went to university in the UK. I studied at Edinburgh University, which is not in England. I'm sorry, but it's a nice <laughs> university to sound close enough. And there I helped found a linguistics association that's now in multiple universities. It's in its 10th or 12th year now. It's called the Undergraduate Linguistics Association of Britain, awesome. um, where linguists get to meet in a conference and learn how to do presentations. That's and so exciting. I've experienced a lot of the same things you're experiencing. Yeah. And one of the reasons I am glad to have you on this podcast for is because I feel like a lot of the issues that you're facing are very similar to issues that you're going to face later in life in which other communities who are doing tech particularly open source, also face. How do you ensure representation? How do you ensure diversity? How do you ensure that people feel supported? How do you do that without making the people who are feeling or who need support have to go out and fight for it all the time at a social cost? Very difficult. So I just wanted to say that's why I thought this was really cool. Another interesting point is a lot of people talk about diversity in tech as being a funnel and a leaky pipeline, right? You need to get more people into it. Obviously, you already have a response to that. And I want to hear what that is, because I think I agree with you. Since we're already on the topic, can you tell me what you feel about the pipeline metaphor and why it may or may not work? So I think first and foremost, people always focus on the part of the pipeline they're currently in. So the current trend of the university is, oh, let's help the university students they see around me. Where that's not necessarily the core focus. We need to think about why is it that people aren't applying in the first place to universities? And yep. as well as why aren't they being supported in the schools? Is it that they walk into classrooms and don't feel represented? 
Or is it another reason? Do they find certain subjects more appealing because they're being more diverse and inclusive and we need to look at those and see what they can do? So I think the metaphor of a pipeline is often people just perceive one part of it. And also the kind of thing that it's kind of shoving as many people through down the pipeline as possible isn't necessarily correct either through that kind of funnel you said about. Instead, we kind of need to view it in the case of thinking about how we can represent that great amount of people so people naturally go through that pipeline rather than necessarily feeling like we need to funnel them through. So I think the big thing there is just really understanding people's needs, but also the privilege that we have ourselves. Hmm. I think often people automatically assume, yes, we should go for access, but they often don't check their own rights before they do that. So I definitely think that's one to really consider. So for instance, even as a female in computer science, I'm very aware of some of the privileges that I have. And being able to reflect those and see the other communities that I necessarily get privileged from that they don't, I think is really important. So it's, again, that kind of idea that it's such a multidimensional space and we kind of need to be tackling all of those issues at once because people don't just fit in one box when it comes to access. So it's really important to be aware of all of those issues kind of throughout someone's life rather than just focusing on to say their specific university and that specific trade. But there are also like some big difficulties in how to kind of approach the process of trying to get more women into STEM jobs, perhaps. For example, there is a big problem that there are a lot of companies that might have 30 employees, but none of them are female. And then it's really challenging for someone, a girl who's applying for jobs to accept a job where she knows she might be the only one. So there is definitely a lot that needs to be done in this space by creating teams that maybe don't make the people who come from like underrepresented groups to feel alone and the only weird one up, let's say. And basically, I also think that some companies don't value enough how important it is to have diverse teams. Yeah, it, There has been so much research done on how teams function better if they have people from diverse backgrounds, diverse genders, diverse ages, opinions, beliefs. Basically, it's really important to have that diversity, but you need to enable it by making conditions better for everyone because maybe some companies don't consider work-life balance enough and that matters more for certain women than for men. Or maybe the companies just don't even listen to women's needs because they are not used to asking questions more directly and maybe they would assume that if something was bothering them, they would just speak up, which might not be the case. But another point I just wanted to add to the pipeline thing about schools and so on, is that a lot of people say, oh, it's just a problem that the girls don't want to do STEM because they want to help people. But I think this is such a wrong approach because clearly tech can help people so much. Yes, maybe the impact is not so directly visible as maybe a nurse helping a person who is sick directly, but Maybe if a girl takes on an open source project and does some amazing work on it, and then so many people around the world can use it for free, she might have such a big impact, maybe a bigger impact than the more nurse she could have become otherwise. And I think the little girls who are deciding which subjects to take in school and then which university to apply to when they're older should really be made aware of how much change they can make in the world, even by doing something that's not standardly viewed as helping people. Yeah, I think quickly just to add that and to kind of tie it back to the open source conference that we're at today, I think the fact that we can open source technology is really helpful because it enables so many other people to be able to see it. 
And also the great thing about that is they might be individuals that you would never have encountered otherwise, whether that be because they don't have the means to leave their home or they have different connections, or maybe they're on really long working hours. They just don't have the time to really invest in seeking out the resources to get into a place. If we can make technology as open source as possible, it really allows students to be able to play with tools and understand tools and get a lot more interest in how they function without necessarily having to go through that kind of pipeline of you should try this. It very much opens a door so that those that are potentially interested have a really safe space to be able to do so. It sounds to me like I want to ask a question of what do you look for in a project or in a company, but you're pretty much answering that by saying I look for signs that they have this type of thinking, not any particular slag, but like just in general that you understand these problems and you're able to signal them to your future employees, to your future community members. So I'm really appreciative of the perspectives you're offering here. We don't often get to talk to university students. We don't often get to talk to women university students, at least on this podcast. One final question I have, which goes back to an earlier topic, I apologize for jumping around again, is governance. You mentioned that you don't know when this thing started. How does it continue to perpetuate itself? How does women in CL continue to exist? And how do you onboard and offboard new women to this very important cause? So basically the initiative works in a way where every single new student, female student who starts studying at Cambridge is invited to our welcome event and is subscribed to our mailing list from which they can unsubscribe, but very rarely people do that. So basically everyone's invited and then we present them with the initiatives we're undertaking and we have gotten such a positive response. I have heard from so many people that they made their best friends through that, that they met so many people that it might be more difficult to meet otherwise because it just... Difficult to have a chill chat with female friends when you're in a lecture hall with a hundred guys and 15 girls. So we have heard very positive feedback and there are enough people who are so passionate about this initiative that they really pour so much work into it. And every year there might be even more interest and dedication to making these events go on and happen again. And we're lucky to have sponsors, some companies that really believe this is important and make sure that all of our events can be accessible and free for everyone. Yeah. And on that note, one thing that I've personally really enjoyed doing through the kind of Women at Scale initiative is the Big Sit or Little Sister scheme that we have. So when, so say, a first-year university student joins, they get paired with an older student, normally second or third year, they can be masters and PhD as well. And we just get to know each other on kind of a personal level, but also a kind of department level. So for instance, I've helped my little sisters in kind of first years with, so say, coursework. Maybe they've got silly questions. They don't want to necessarily ask for supervision, especially if, so say, their entire group is male-dominated, just like it might have been. Or alternatively, just for a sense of having someone who is familiar in the department from the get-go, that it's very easy to open that communication. So that's been a scheme we found is really great and everyone really loves because it really allows you to get to know a small group of students really well. And that's been a real great way for us to carry on the torch, as you've mentioned, because people are automatically getting to know their community. And then when they turn second or searches, master's PhD, they then really want to give back because I personally found my mentor really helpful when I went through that first year process in a very daunting new environment. And that scheme, I guess, could be generalizable to companies as well, because yes. what stops companies from making a scheme that every newcomer can get a mentor who helps them with the challenges underrepresented that may be facing. You've mentioned that you have PhD student coming to give a talk. Yes. Um, tell me about mentorship from the graduate school and uh, postgraduates and assistant lecturers, et cetera. So basically, 
not only every undergrad student who joins gets a mentor, also PhD students and researchers do, Excellent. except that everyone gets a mentor from their group. So for example, a first year PhD student will get an older PhD student, incoming postdoc researcher will get a researcher who has been there for a while. So someone they can relate to pretty well, but also someone who has had the experience of the department. So this works on all levels. Yeah, including up to, to say, our lecturers. So for instance, they have people that they can go out to when they join the department and whatnot. And I think that also extends out to, to say, I know some of the computer science lecturers have mentors that they've actively sought out in other departments. So we're really aware of the whole scope, whether that be the engineering or the math department. So it really does work on a wide scope. Sounds like something that would be great to include in the open source program office as a regular thing to all your listeners. Thank you so much. This is really excellent. You mentioned company sponsorship. Where can companies reach out to women at CL if they're interested in sponsoring? You can go to the web page on our department's website, which is csd.cam.ac.uk slash women. And there you can find our contact and please do get in touch. We also do love our social media. So we've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and especially over on Twitter. One of my course mates will answer lots of questions from, so say, admission students or anyone interested. So feel free to drop us a line there as well. Excellent. Would you two like to share where we can reach out to you? If you want to get in touch, you can contact me on imd219 at cam.ac.uk. That's my yearly email and I regularly check it for women at CL updates. Excellent. And mine is a slightly nicer, easier to remember GP500, again, with the same extension at cam.ac.uk. Cool. Thank you so much. I hope that people are able to help sponsor and reach out. And I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. Again, this is more unusual guest for us, but really important. And I'm so glad you're here at this because I didn't know anyone else here was coming from a university except for maybe Mike Nolan. So it's just really great to see this representation happening. And I hope that you continue to find sponsorship and opportunities. And again, thank you so much. 